Welcome to the Africa Speaking Podcast. The podcast discusses critical issues about the African continent. It is brought to you by Toyota Communications in Nairobi. My name is Kimani Njogu. Our guest today is historian and writer Zarina Patel. Um, so, uh, for purposes of our um, listeners, if you could just introduce yourself a little, then we'll move on to the topic. When I think of myself, I really think of the landmark moments in my life, which made uh, a huge impression and, and changed the course of, of my thinking. Okay, I think the first influence that really uh, impacted on my, my, my thinking was religion. Uh, and at, at, uh, when I was, I think I, was, I must have been about nine years old. And uh, I come from the Bora community, which is a uh, Shia Ismaili sect. And we have the tradition of confirming children around that age. I think all religions do have that some kind of, you know, uh, ceremony. And that's where I first uh, began to question uh, religion. You are questioning the Bora yes. religion? Yes, yes. As a well, young, as a I, was, young woman. I was questioning that ceremony and the, uh, you know, I wanted to know what the high priest would say to me. Yeah. Uh, and of course, he does it all in Arabic. And uh, my parents told me, that's all right, you just have to say yes, you know, to everything he says. And I said, no, I can't. I must know what he is telling me, asking me, you know. And when my, I was informed, that uh, he will ask you if you will pray regularly, if you will fast, you know, all the rest of it. I said, I can't say yes to that because I knew I was going to go to her for further studies to Britain and there's no way I could do all these things there. And I was told, don't worry about that, you just say yes. No. <laughs> so you just say yes, and, and here you are as a young person asking questions and exactly. saying, you know, I have a right to say no. So, so that, that really sent, set me off on a whole trajectory. And I came to realize that there's no one religion which has got all the answers. Yeah, actually, all religions do not have answers. You have more and more questions. But of course, the idea here is that you go by faith and so on. For today, I really want us to discuss uh, with you, uh, Zarina Patel, about the work you have done you know, related to trade unionists, because I know you've done quite a bit of work. And I want us to start from the beginning, really, with the question, in your view, at what point did trade unions become a factor in Kenya's history? Uh, because if we are to assume that trade unions are really about workers organizing themselves for their benefits whether those benefits are political benefits or uh, economic benefits or even social benefits. Um, in the case of Kenya, when do we start seeing this trade union, you know, sensibility, uh, consciousness? Fine. I, I think we need to go, Kimani, a bit earlier uh, and look at uh, the imposition of the wage system uh, in our country. And of course, we didn't have Kenya then. Uh, I'm talking of the, the very late uh, uh, 19th century. And um, the building of the railways brought in the capitalist wage system, which I think, uh, and I think generally accepted, that the wage system in itself is built in to create labor unrest. 
huh? because of the alienation and the exploitation of labor and the profit motives of the employer. Okay, so you've got a, an area of conflict there. So there was labor unrest ever since we started building the the, the railway. The, the only difference was that it didn't get organized. And um, also on top of the wage system was the colonial factor. So now you had uh, Indians, uh, Europeans, and Africans operating separately. So getting that unity of the workers also was difficult. So if I can just go back, you had these groups of workers who were organizing and who were uh, bringing up matters of labor injustice, okay? But as the economy developed in the urban and the rural areas, workers became more and more aware of their exploitation and uh, began to make demands. Okay. In the 1910s, I would say, certainly 20s, 30s, 40s, there was a very sizable Kenyan left uh, in this country. It was the left that was uh, consisted of the Indian laborers who had migrated from the north of India, recruited on the railway, and had then settled here. And they were basically workers. They were working. They were workers. The workers and on the railway yes, line. Yes, yes, artisans and, and, and workers. Are, yeah. And they came from a, tra- a tradition of, uh, uh, in India at that time, of uh, ideological development of a very vibrant uh, uh, labor organization and, and struggle for workers' rights. So they came with that knowledge, you know, and they were settled here. So in 1914, they formed the Indian Trade Union. That was in Mombasa and in Nairobi, in 1914. 1914. Yeah. So almost like soon after the railway line was completed. Yeah, yes, right. And, 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 and it's very significant that this is the railway line from Mombasa all the way to Uganda. It's the it's right. Kenya-Uganda railway line. Right. And Mombasa is the beginning, so that... Uh, and, and they were settling in Nairobi, in, in Nakuru, in Kisumu, yeah. and beyond, you know. Um, so 1914. Yeah, 1914. 1919, you've got the European workers forming the Workers' Federation of, the, uh, of British East Africa. That's what they called it. Okay? The Workers' Federation of British East Africa. Yeah. yeah, because at that time we were still dealing with British East, East Africa. Yeah, right, mm. right. And then in 1919, another group of Indians formed the Indian Employees Association. So uh, my guess is that it wasn't as uh, ideologically to the left as the previous Indian Trade Union. Mm-hmm. And then Harry Suku's East Africa Association was not only a political association, mm-hmm. it was an association of workers. So suddenly now there is a convergence between the workers' consciousness yeah. and the political activities yes. that are taking place so that they are agitating not just for the rights of workers in terms of wages and, and welfare, but also making certain political demands. Exactly. And another important thing is that they're not only working in their ethnic conclave. They are now reaching out beyond those boundaries. So Harithuku coming from central Kenya yeah. 
uh, working closely with uh, organizing in Nairobi, which is a totally cosmopolitan you know, place. In those earlier days, yes. So working with the Luo, working with the Luya, yes. com- working with the Indian he, he community. Was, he was the first African leader who broke through the boundaries mm-hmm. of ethnicity. Mm-hmm. He couldn't break through the race boundaries, you know, because that was instituted by the colonialists. But he certainly broke through the ethnic boundaries, you know. So a certain um, class consciousness which transcends ethnic identity. So the class consciousness as a working class becoming possible, you know, right from the onset in terms of labor and labor's engagement with capital in those earlier stages. And I I would be quite interested in hearing from you talk a little more about... How then the workers' associations, you know, in those earlier days, eh, start making political demands? Because it seems like they are moving from just questions of labor, questions of welfare, to questions of politics. And Hari Thuku leading in that process. Yeah, and if you could also just, you know, share with me a little bit about whether there are certain solidarities with the, the Indian uh, employees of the time, whether Hari Thuku is reaching out to them or not. There was a very close relationship, actually. You know, we forget, we tend to think that we are very sharply divided in those times. Yes, we were racially very, very, uh, there were real boundaries, you know, and you couldn't work and organize cross-race, all right. But they couldn't stop people from being uh, in the anti-colonial struggle. They couldn't. So what you've got is, say, if you go back to the 1914, uh, Jivanji forms the East African Indian National Congress. Jivanji, I mean, we remember him because of Jivanji Gardens. Right. So he forms the... East African Indian National Congress. Yes. It's designed on the National Congress in India, Indian National Congress. And basically, uh, he does it because he wants to bring all the various Indian communities and down under one umbrella. And there's, a whole, <laughs> there's a whole lot of ethnic communities in the Indian uh, community, okay? Um, so that was the intention. And then they have branches all over the country. In that, he recruits a man called Manilal Desai, who has just come from India. Uh, he come to work as a law clerk here, and with a European firm... And then he stalks out because he feels one day he's smoking a cigar and he's told, put it out, you're not allowed. And yet everybody, all the Wazungus are smoking cigars. Mm. So he says, why why can't I smoke a cigar? And he walks out of the... That is the side. That's the side. And uh, Jivanji picks him up and recruits him as general secretary of the Congress. The side is uh, a bachelor alone. And very political. He meets Harry Thoku, mm-hmm. who is also a bachelor. Both are living sort of out of their normal home circumstances, right? So they get together and uh, share their politics, okay? And of course, they're all, you know, immersed in the anti colonial uh, sentiments. Uh, the size starts a newspaper called the East African Chronicle, mm-hmm. and he has a friend. You know, oh, he, he had a press. Yes, yeah, he had yeah, a press. Yeah, yeah. He's the Chronicle Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And he really was the voice of the colonized 
as such. To who's being African is not allowed to own a forest, right? So the Sai agrees to uh, print his Tangazo leaflet. Uh, it's a tabloid, actually. Yeah. So Harry Fuku not only cut across ethnic boundaries, he was also the first African leader to use the media, the print media, to spread his political message. And we're talking about the very early stages yeah. of colonial presence in Kenya. So it seems like the consciousness was rather immediate. Eh? It seems like people, are, you know, Harry Thuku is moving very, very quickly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. With work, again, working with Desai. Yes, because yeah. the Indians, of course, were coming with a much older uh, tradition, both of the press and of fighting colonialism in India. You know? Absolutely. Uh, uh, and they were sharing this now with the African population, you know. Um, and, and in fact, uh, when, when uh, uh, Suku used to go out into the rural areas and hold his political rallies, uh, he, he used to go in Jivanji's car. Wow. Which had a Maasai chauffeur, Haikoko. Uh-huh. So you can see the they were breaking ethnic boundaries. Ethnic and racial boundaries, <laughs> yes. actually, in those well, very early yes, stages. Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. Wow. I don't think even he ever met Hugo yes. or knew him, you know. Um, but uh, this is the way they interacted, thoughts and ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at one point, the British were, from the start, very, very, of any African Indian coming together, yes, uh, you know, because they could see the danger of this uh, association, you know, so they kept trying to put down the the Indians, right? Even uh, when they in twenty one, then they go to London. There's a Devonshire Declaration. Yeah, the Devonshire uh, Declaration of nineteen twenty. Yes, twenty two actually. Twenty two. Yes. Uh, and. Uh, M. Edesai was leading that delegation. Uh, uh, then uh, the, uh, they declared, the British declared the African interest was paramount. Yeah. Uh, with no intention at all of doing anything about yes, that, yes. you know. At that time, you know, they really uh, pushed forward the idea that uh, your problems are because are caused by the Indian presence mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, Tuku's organization wrote a, a, sent a telegram to London to say Indians are our best friends. So this, yeah, he's a, the East African Association. So again, Harry Thuku standing, yes. you know, in solidarity with the Indian. Exactly. And kind of challenging yeah. the British interpretation yeah. of the African problem. As, and you see, well. even for, to, to meet for across races was very difficult for leaders to get together. So Jivanji Villa became the place for uh, meetings of the both leaders on both sides, you know. So fast forward from because that that is now in terms of uh, period nineteen tens. Okay. I, I, I said to you after nineteen 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 we yeah, had small yes. groupings, uh, the Indian Trade Union, the, uh, employees association, all that. Then in nineteen thirty three, actually, in the railway, Indian artisans were demoted by the colonialists. Uh, from being permanent staff to temporary staff. In 1933? 1933. Yes. So at that time, 
the Indians got together again, uh, and in December 1934, they held a, a huge mass meeting, and they formed the Indian Workers' Trade Union to protest against this particular uh, incident. And over over 500 people, eh? uh, which is a big number in those Absolutely. days. Absolutely, in those days, 500, yeah. huge, yeah. huge numbers. Uh, working class people attended that, yeah. that meeting. And history has recorded that there was a total absence of any kind of racial, religious, or communal division. They were totally united. Mm. But they realized also that somehow all these attempts could not have not been sustained. Mm -hmm. You will come together, fight for an issue, it is resolved or one way or the other, and then it's the, we will disband. Largely because of the hostility from the colonial forces mm -hmm. and the hostility, hostility of the employers. Correct. They don't want unions, right? Correct, because of course it challenges power yeah. and challenges capital. I mean, exactly. and at that time, of course, the whole focus was extraction of resources and extraction of labor, labor to take care of British interests. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, total, because of that total lack of any kind of labor legislation, right? And then, of course, the worst thing was that uh, because industry was so, in so much in its infancy, so undeveloped, yeah. uh, uh, workers would be moving from job to job. Yes. So that migratory kind of labor was difficult to organize, to, organize, to, yeah. to sustain. Yeah. So in 1935, now Makan Singh, uh, I'm going, I'm jumping a bit, but Makan Singh, uh, uh, his father had come earlier and brings Makan Singh over in 1927. Mm -hmm. And the family, his wife and, and all the other children. So uh, Mahan Singh also comes from India. India. Yeah. He comes from India. Very, He lived very close to Amritsar, where the great massacre had taken place. Mm. I don't know if you are aware of it, the Amritsar massacre, where this Colonel Dyer and his, his uh, troops massacred hundreds of uh, Indians who had gathered to celebrate a religious festival. In, in the gardens in Amritsar, mm -hmm. you know. And so many other things going on around him at that time, okay? The agitation, anti-colonial agitation, the labor struggles and all that. So he had actually uh, studied these, imbibed this, and then he comes to... Uh, so, the, so, so, so the labor consciousness that um, exists in India in the 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s finds expression really, in Kenya because yes. these people are coming and right. they are already conscious that it is important for labor to resist capital, for labor to stand up, to be, you know, to build solidarities and so on. And so Makhan Singh comes with his father. He comes, yeah. No, his, no, his father came earlier oh, okay. and he was an artisan on the, on, he was actually a carpenter, uh, recruited on the, to work on the railways, mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. And he forms, uh, tries to form a union of workers in the railways mm -hmm. and then finally gets dismissed. And then he sets up a, a printing press of his own. Ah, okay. alongside uh, Desai's... Uh... By that time Desai has died. Oh, Desai. Desai died. And his chronicle newspaper has been shut down by the colonialists. And, mm -hmm. 
That's another story. Yeah, because okay. of its uh, radicalizing uh, capacity. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So Makan Singh now... He comes as a 27-year-old. He joins uh, the, what is now the Jamhuria uh, high school. Right? The, what was it? The yes. Duke of Gloucester or something? Yes, uh, yes. In those days. Yeah? Yes. Jamhuri, Jamhuri High School, very close to what is now Moranga Road. That's oh. right. Yeah. That's right, yeah. right. And uh, does brilliantly. He's a brilliant student. But then, he, you know, his, his, his family, his father could not afford to uh, send him for further education. So he joins the printing press. All right? And he starts working with the workers on the floor. Okay? He, wa he insists that he wants to be there not as an owner, but as a worker. Mahan Singh. That age. No, it comes in 27. He was oh, he born in 1913. Ah, okay. So he's very young. He's, he's very, a very young. young he's very young. Mm. So these uh, uh, workers who have formed Indian Workmen's Trade Union, okay, realizing that they keep meeting together and then disbanding and, you know, they're not getting anywhere. And Makan Singh completes his education, okay, in 1933. So they asked, in 1935, they asked Makan Singh if he would be take on the task of uh, working in this organization and getting it, to, uh, you know, uh, onto a firm footing. Mm -hmm. Makan Singh is 23 years old. He takes on the task as the Honorable Secretary of the organization. So there's no remuneration. Wow. Okay? And he begins to organize it. And um, what he starts with regular management committee meetings, membership fees, changes the name from the Indian Trade Union to the Labor Trade Union, LTU. So he's moving now from uh, the racial, yes. you know, uh, he concentration. He needs to bring in the African workers. Absolutely. Okay. And then later they change the name even to LTUEA mm -hmm. because they include the, what was the, then later became the Uganda and Tanzania, Tanzania. So he's evolving into a labor trade union, yeah. East Africa. Right. Um, again, to bring in the workers, not of just from of Kenya. Of East Africa. Of East Africa. Yeah. So he's developing a consciousness, yeah. a regional consciousness. Right. And then he acquires uh, the technology to, which enables him to type letters to the press, uh, print handbills, posters, campaign material, pamphlets in English, Swahili, Gujarati, and Urdu. Multilingual, completely, completely. multilingual, yes. very conscious of the linguistic scenario exactly. in Nairobi and in Kenya, actually in East Africa at yeah, the time. East Africa, actually. Wow. Yeah, that was really quite remarkable, you know. Absolutely remarkable. I mean, some of the issues that we are dealing with now about uh, communicating, you know, broadly, he was already ahead. Yes, yes. In terms of seeing that you can do press in Urdu, Gujarati, you know, Swahili, English, English and so on, and yeah. reach out to all these uh, working-class people. Right. And uh, then they start demanding improvement in wages, conditions of work, for demanding an end to forced labor, 
you know, that was really highly focused uh, in a strong point. So that is now in the 1930s, 1940s, right? Yeah. Then, right. then suddenly we have the emergency. So Mahan Singh is already situating himself. So, uh, let's say he was a good organizer. Mm-hmm. He was a trade unionist. Mm-hmm. He was an excellent communicator who understood and empathized with the workers. And he insisted on non-alignment with any international uh, trade union. So the ICFTU, you know, the International Congress of... From the U.S. or the Russia, or the USSR, the WFTU. So he wanted the trade union... He wanted completely independent. It was East African and that was it. To push the agenda of the working class in East Africa without undue influence by other trade union agendas, whether those are British or American. Right, right. He wanted total independence. But he did, uh, from the start, he saw the struggle between capitalists and workers as being ideological. Okay? Through all this, the workers learned how to unite, how to fight for their rights, and to be prepared to self-sacrifice. That was a very important. I mean, that Makan Singh in his own lifestyle uh, demonstrated it, you know, to all the to all his followers and members. So the self-sacrifice, the organizing, the really devotion, yeah, and so on, right. And and the, and getting over you know religious differences, yeah. ethnic differences, building solidarities based on uh, the interest of the workers. So trade union branches were formed all over East Africa then. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then you, you get the LTUEA yeah. in 1939. They're celebrating May Day, and the Africans workers joining in the that's the time when Africans really began to see the benefit of being in a trade union. So at that time, of course, now, as you say, you know, it's basically the Labour Trade Union of East Africa and the agendas are East Africa. They are not necessarily national. It's working class. Yeah, but Indians. Yeah, but then there are branches. Okay, Indians. Yeah. And the Africans are watching. Correct. To see how it's going, you know. Correct, correct. And on that May Day in 1939, they made the decision to join. And they joined in vast numbers. Mm-hmm. Entire sort of African working class came over, you know. And the colonial government was seriously alarmed, you know, at this uh, coming together Sad of the Asians, yes. Indians, and the Africans. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, I, in uh, it was in ninety-one or two, I think that Bill Clinton in the States made this famous statement, it is the economy stupid. Yes. Remember yes, that? I remember. Yeah. It is the economy stupid. It's always about capital. Yeah. Yeah. But you see, the workers had realized this a long time ago, you know, uh, ever since the 1917 October Revolution, in yes. fact. Yes. You yes. know? Yes. Okay. This is the, the Bolshevik uh, yeah. revolution, yes. So uh, the real danger for colonialism was uh, worker involvement, not the, the presidents and leaders, you know. They were there just as an image. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Then we had World War II. Yes. 
So things, you know, came to uh, all kinds of organizing, came to a full stop. Okay. Uh, in 1944, they found a uh, cow. Mm -hmm. There had been uh, the African there had been KCA before. Yeah. Uh, the Kikuyu Central Association. Band, mm -hmm. and, and then cow was re found in 1944. Mm -hmm. In 1947, you had this huge strike in Mombasa. Mm -hmm. The Mombasa General Strike. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 15,000 African workers took part. This is 1947. 1947. It's very interesting because at that same year, uh -huh. there was the Dock Workers Union in Zanzibar yeah. also organizing a huge, huge uh, strike. Yeah, so it seems like it's these things are happening in, within the East African region. It would be interesting to find out where there were any, you know, what they what they coordinated. You know, and, and did this LTUEA yes. uh, extend that far? And yes, what influence it had? Yeah, it would be something that, I mean, yeah. we can check uh, later right. to see whether Mombasa, the Mombasa strike of 1947, had, and any, the dock connection. had any connection, the dock workers' uh, union strike right. in Zanzibar. Right. Because that, that points to a certain... East African consciousness and solidarity. Uh, you know, in the Mombasa that. strike was not a dock worker strike. Yeah, yeah it was general. It was a general strike. And it was led by 28-year-old Chege Kibashia. Chege Kibashia. That's right. Of course. And he, he was head of the African Workers' Federation. Chege was ideologically very well read. But... Uh, had very little uh, experience in organizing, mm. you know. So ultimately, the the strike failed. It lasted twelve days. Yeah, which is which is significant. Yes. I mean, twelve days is significant. Right. I right. mean, nowadays the strikes don't last two days. <laughs> so 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 really, twelve days is quite significant. In those earlier days, yeah. So Tegi was arrested with twelve other people. They were defended by advocates. Now, interesting the names O'Brien. <laughs> I was an advocate, Nene, I think was a Kikuyu. Eh? Yeah, Nene could be either Kikuyu or it could be Taita. Or it uh, could be Indian, you know. Or it right? could be Indian, yes. yes, yes, yes. One of my best friends is a doctor, uh, Nene, so. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then a hotel, uh, mm -hmm. some hotel. Yeah. Okay, so even the defense team, you know. Yeah. Again, multi-ethnic, multi-ethnic, yes. multi multi-racial. Multi right. And then he was found guilty and he was detained in Kavanet for 10 years. So, very interesting. Again, very, very interesting because... So, the strike takes place in Mombasa. Yeah. But he's detained in Kabarnet, which is in the Rift Valley. Yeah. In a generally dry area and so on. And far away. And far from, away. Yeah. And, and so, the fact that you're being moved away from the community yeah. where you are known and you have solidarities... Right to, you know, far-flung uh, other spaces. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and to re-emerge re re yeah. as a traditional leader, you know. So, so yeah, so what happens? What happens? So many things going on at that time. Mm. Eh? Uh, 1947, we get uh, the establishment of the Daily Chronicle newspaper. Daily Chronicle newspaper, newspaper. 1947. And that is founded by a group of intellectual South Asian leftists who are determined to both expose and to oppose 
the colonial administration. So the, the chronicle becomes uh, the, the uh, really at that time the only voice in English, which can be internationally uh, uh, broadcast about what the injustices of the British colonial system in Kenya. Absolutely, and this is happening almost soon after the Second World War. I mean, it's the Second World War ends in 1945, right? And now more radical reflection and more yes. internationalization of the grievances. And don't forget, yes. India has got its independence. Absolutely, you know, and that's very important also because it gives greater strength and vigor uh, to the Indian left. Uh, in this country. Also, at the same time, in the UK, Labour was in power, Correct. comes into power. Correct. So they also have a, you know, a, a much more sympathetic approach to the Kenyan situation. So, so more ra radical thinking is taking place in Kenya within the context of yeah. certain global trends, whether those trends are in India, which has huge influence right. on Kenya, or in Britain, yeah. which is the colonial um, the colonial power yeah. uh, in the case of Kenya. Right. Where well, also the very radical things are happening is the National Health Service was uh, formed then in that in that period. You know when that Labour government came into power. So quite some ideological moves. Huh? Yeah. Makan Singh then becomes a friend of the group in the Chronicle. Yes. Okay. Uh -huh. Uh, and uh, so now the workers have got another avenue yes. to make their demands and, you know, uh, for justice and their rights. Okay. And the Chronicle is clearly leftist in terms, yeah, in terms of its... Uh, and it also becomes a, like a meeting ground. So the young African leaders also start visiting the Chronicle. Makan Singh is there, you know, and the journalists are there. Right. And this is the real force. Uh, against the colonialists. Okay. Um, Mackenzie is also holding classes on Marxism for the that Chronicle team. And they were often joined by comrades from South Africa, Dadu, Naika. So these people, you know, used to travel, I, I don't know, to so Moscow from, or whatever, yes. and would stop over uh, here in Nairobi. So the South African left yeah. is also providing input yes. into the ideological uh, direction yeah. of the Kenyan, the Kenyan working class and the journalists and others. And of course, so there is this almost class uh, education, yeah. as it were, right. in those earlier stages. Right, absolutely, yeah. Then added to that, see, India by winning its independence, has now shown the world, or uh, other colonies, that it's doable. Yeah. That you can actually become independent. <laughs> That's actually, you can That's actually... That's what, you know, yeah. up till now, uh, there was much more of a, a struggle for reformism. Yeah. But now suddenly it's like, hey, no, we can go the whole way. Absolutely. You know, demand independence, okay? Added to that, are the uh, African recruits, ex-servicemen, coming back from the war? Who had actually done service in uh, in Burma, in different parts of the world, and they're coming back? Yeah, and had, who had actually seen that you can fight the white man. Yes. And destroy him. Yes. 
You know? Actually, seen firsthand uh, British generals, yeah. you know, kind of taking cover yeah. when the African soldiers are up there, you know. Yeah. So all these people are coming back. All these people are exposed to other ways of seeing the world, yeah. you know, on the basis of the war, yeah. on the basis of the interaction with India right. and South Africa right. and so forth and so on. So the, the entire environment is like, you know, uh, building, coming together. Uh, of many of these experiences and sentiments and struggles, you know. Ex-servicemen coming back from uh, the war then form a, gr a group called the Anake. Yes, the Anake. group of 40. They were calling them Anake Aforte, which yeah. is basically the, the youth of the, of, the 90s, of the 40s. Yeah. It's very interesting because I was reading um, the late Gakara Wanjao's uh, books. Yes. And he would, of course, say that uh, they did a lot of things which relate to even... They came back with some money. Yeah. So they yeah. did a lot of things which were, you know, kind of surprising. Right. Yeah, right. in terms of social formations and so on. Yeah. Lots of courage, you know, uh, they had some resources and they shifted things a little bit. They also saw the total injustice of the, of, of the British in, what, in the way they rewarded the uh, British soldiers. And the way they... The returning British soldiers were rewarded while the African returning soldiers were not rewarded. Not only not rewarded, they come back to find they lost their land and everything. Yes. Right? This concludes our first episode in our three-part series of this podcast with historian and writer Zarina Patel. Thank you for listening to the Africa Speaking Podcast. Join us in our next episode. Brought to you by Triza Communications. My name is Kimani Njogu. For any comments and views, you can reach us through our website, www.africaspeaking.org. You can also reach us on Facebook, Twaweza Communications, or on our Twitter handle, at TwawezaComs. You can also write to us on email, info at africaspeaking.org